Thanks, you guys. Amen. We'll see you on the patio. All right, Barb. Thank you. Let's grab a Bible. We're going to the book of Genesis, chapter 15. If you're new to our community, we're in a series on John chapter 3, verse 16. Usually we start there. We will end there this morning. We've been spending some time through this uh, very well-known verse, going phrase by phrase through it to remind ourselves that the biggest obstacle against actually knowing something is believing that you already do. And so for many of us, we take the familiar words of Scripture, they lose their punch. And so we want to we spend some time plumbing the depths. We remember that we believe that anybody can open the Bible. It doesn't matter who you are, what your background is, whether you know Greek or Hebrew, uh, and you can benefit. God will speak. We also believe that you can spend your entire life diving into this book and never reach the bottom. And so with that posture, we've been taking our time through this verse. Let's start in Genesis 15. We ended there last week, and so this is part two of a two-parter. If you remember Abram, out of nowhere, we meet Abram. He's mentioned in a little genealogy at the end of chapter 11. He has a wife, Sarai. Sarai is barren. She cannot have kids. Then chapter 12 starts and God shows up to Abram and says, Hey, Abram, have I got a deal for you? I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. You're going to have kids and descendants. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so this sets up a tension that carries the narrative forward. Abram has promised children but he doesn't get children right away. God, I, have you ever heard the, the, the phrase, God's timing is perfect? Do you ever believe that? I think God's timing is awfully slow. And this is one of those instances where God keeps delaying on purpose and it provokes Abram to all of these sorts of questions. Now, if you remember last week, God uh, reveals himself to Abram. He says, I'm your shield, your very great reward, verse 2. And instead of saying, hey, thank you, that sounds awesome. Abram says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? In other words, hey, I appreciate the good wishes, but I'd really like a kid. You have given me no children, so a servant is going to be my heir. So literally, God just is always promising to bless him, and Abraham is always saying, um, I want kids. You promise kids, where are the kids? In fact, this gets pushed forward into several chapters. Go if you would to chapter 16. Verse 1, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, so this is decades later, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, hey, I've got an idea. The Lord hasn't given me kids. Why don't you go and sleep with my slave, and maybe we'll get offspring through her. Now, have you ever been tempted to help God answer his own, the prayers that you have for God? Have you ever been tempted to help him out a little bit? So this is the classic, hey, Abram, you and Sarah are going to have a kid together. Decades go by. Well, says Sarah, why don't I have a slave? And she looks relatively cute. And so why don't you try this out? Maybe God will bless this. God comes and says, nope. Just so we're clear, Abram, it's through you and Sarah that this child will come. Go if you would to chapter 17. Hagar, the servant, gets pregnant. She gives birth to a boy named Ishmael. Ishmael is taken care of by God, but Ishmael is not the child of the promise. God, again, over and over, reaffirms, it's you and it's Sarah. You and Sarah together will have a kid. God reaffirms this, and notice what they do in uh, chapter 17, verse 17. 
Abraham, when he heard this, fell face down and laughed. He laughed. So God promises that it's going to be through him, and he laughs. Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael, this other son, might live under your blessing. In other words, hey, we took care of it. Why don't you just bless our solution? And God keeps saying, no, 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 it's through you and Sarah. And so they laugh at him. So decades go by. You were promised kids. There's no kids. Hey, I'll be your great reward, God says. Sweet, where's my children? God takes him out and he says, look at the stars. That's how many kids you're going to have. Well, okay, well, since God is slow in keeping his promise, let's hook Abraham and Hagar up. They give birth, but that's not the child of the promise. God reaffirms, no, it's you and Sarah who are going to have a kid together. He laughs. So this goes on for decades until chapter 21. Verse 1. When finally, after years... Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. Abraham gave him the name Isaac, which means laughter. Right? So they they laughed at God, and so now laughter is their child. Verse 5, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Which, you know, it's awesome when you get to go to the store and buy Depends for yourselves and diapers for your kid all at the same time. Now, cheap shot, I know, that was awful. Now, you got a blank sheet of paper when you walked in, correct? That is not for phone numbers unless you're single. It is not for recipes. You will write a list of nine things on one side of that sheet of paper. And if you choose not to write, you will rue the moment in 20 minutes that you've not written. Okay, you will rue it. R-U-E, rue that moment. So I invite you to write down number one. Would you agree with me that the birth of Isaac is miraculous? Would you agree with me? Yes, so write down number one, miraculous birth. I mean, 100 years old, I think that's the reason God delayed so much. So he was the only one who would get credit. All right, miraculous birth, number one. You got it? Okay, go to chapter 22. Now, men and women, stay focused. In chapter 12, the promise is made. Until decades go by, chapter 21, the promise is received. And then we hit chapter 22, verse 1. And I'm, I'm bummed sometimes that so many of us uh, have been raised in the church because we hear these stories and we know the stories and they lose their punch. But could you imagine reading this for the first time? Verse 1, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. All right, so it's... In Hebrew, it's a fourfold repetition that actually pushes the intensity of the narrative. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Go to the region of Moriah, or if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, Moria. Now, <laughs> sacrifice, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. Now, what's a burnt offering? What do you do to get a burnt offering? You set something on fire. So let me get this straight. 
for decades. I mean, we're sick of reading about it, right? Chapter after chapter. When am I going to get a kid? When am I going to get a kid? Here's your kid. We get to enjoy that for one chapter. And then God says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and burn him as an offering to me. Really? I mean, on the odd scale of Bible stories, is this up there? I think so. Early the next morning, Abraham got up to do this. He loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Now, is Abraham lying? Because really it should have been, we'll worship and I'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went up together, Isaac asked the very natural question. We've got the wood. We got stuff to make fire. We got a knife. Where's the lamb that we're going to sacrifice? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac. Now, the Jews, when they read this, they don't call this the testing of Abraham. They call it the binding of Isaac. Because Isaac wasn't a little kid here. Some, some even guess he's around 30, based on the chronology. I don't know. But they, they say that Isaac voluntarily let himself be bound. They don't, they don't focus on the faith of Abraham. They focus on the voluntary nature of Isaac trusting his dad enough to let himself be bound. So Abraham bound Isaac, laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. He reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son and then comma, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said the mountain of the Lord, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. What a crazy story. Now, there are eight other things I want to draw your attention to and I want you to write down, all right? Now again, you don't have to. You can doodle, you can pretend. Jesus will know your heart. All right, there are things in this story I want you to focus on. Number one, or actually it's number two because miraculous birth was number one. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Write down that phrase, whom you love. This repetition Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. It's very, very intentional. Number three, write down sacrifice him. 
give him up as an offering. Sacrifice him. And Abraham, as far as we know, says, okay. I mean, the text doesn't tell us anything. Do you think he told his wife? No. No, I think we can safely say. So he loads up the donkey. He's got Isaac. He takes two servants. And then the journey takes three days. Could you imagine for three days living under this? Do you think Isaac knew? Of course not. I mean, he's asking about the lamb when he shows up. You know, where is this sacrifice? And Abraham might be going, well, son, you don't look like a lamb, but you are one. And, and I mean, you just don't know how this whole thing went. But I want you to write down on the third day for number four. It took three days. For three days, Isaac was as good as dead. And then when they get to the mountain, what does Abraham say to the servants? Hey, we're going to go worship and we're going to come back to you. So write down the phrase, we will come back for number five. So they load up. And, and would you agree this text isn't very detailed? I mean, we have no idea what's going on in Abraham. We have no idea what's going on in Isaac. We have no clue. But yet, the author wants to tell us who carried what up the mountain. Does that strike you as a little odd? So Abraham, let's be clear, he carried, because I, mean, I was wondering at this point in the story, well, who's going to carry the wood? I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, so Abraham took the fire and the knife and Isaac carried the wood. Write that down. Isaac carried the wood. Number six. And then, as, as he's carrying the wood, hey, Dad, I'm looking around here and I'm not seeing an animal. What's he say? God will provide a lamb. God will provide the lamb. It's number seven. God will provide the lamb. Now, if you're wondering... Will there be a payoff for my taking notes? Oh, yes, there will be. You may not think it worth it, but I dare you to test me on this, says the Lord. <laughs> Abraham gets ready to sacrifice him, and what shows up instead? A ram. So put a ram instead. God provided, indeed. That's number eight. And then number nine, Abraham does a very Jewish thing. Do you notice what, what the Jews do is they name places after things happen there. So, so there will be a place that will have many different names because many different things have happened. So it's kind of like the five, right? I moved out from Ohio. It's the five, as if there were no other five, first of all, arrogant Californians. And then secondly... It's called different names, right? It's the Golden State Freeway. It's the Santa Ana Freeway. I mean, it's horribly confusing, but it's all referring to the same stretch of asphalt. Now, biblically, what's this mountain called? Mount Moriah. Okay, just seeing if you're paying attention. Abraham is going to name it God Will Provide. He's going to speak of it in the future. Now, if I'm naming the mountain, I'm going to name it, hey, God did provide, right? I was going to kill my son, and there was a ram instead, so God did provide, past tense. Abraham names it on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided in the future. So, it will be provided, number nine. 
I like how some of the men have delegated the task of writing to their wives. I, I, I just... Now, you got those down. We're going to make another list of nine. Turn the page over. Now, who do you think is going to be the point of this next list? Jesus! Right, the right answer in every church service. So the surprise isn't going to be that it's Jesus, but the surprise is how it's Jesus. There are parallels between the life of Jesus and the story that I want you to notice that explain a phrase in John 3.16. So the point of this, remember, is John 3.16. And so what I want you to do is I want to go through nine parallels that we see, you see it coming in the life of Jesus. No one's surprised. Oh, really? That's, oh, on the third day. Hmm, I wonder where that's going. No one's shocked. But I want you to see how the parallels work. Go to Matthew chapter 1, all right? So do we have a miraculous birth? Yes. So number one on the Jesus column, miraculous birth. Shocking. Now, we Christians believe some pretty crazy stuff. Would you agree? We, we don't think it's crazy because we believed it long enough, but if you went home and some 13-year-old girl from Sacramento was proclaiming that she was engaged and that the, uh, that the fiancé, she was pregnant, but it wasn't the fiancé's baby, it was God's baby, would you be a little skeptical? Yes. And so this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. Matthew 1, verse 18. His mother Mary, 12 or 13 years old, was betrothed to Joseph, maybe 17, 18 years old, and betrothal was a big big deal a year-long period. They were considered married, but they were not allowed to have sexual relations. But before they came together in marriage, she's pregnant through the Holy Spirit. So we've got a virgin birth on our hands, men and women. So number one, miraculous birth. Okay, you're not writing that down? Or you just put quote marks from the last one. See other side. (laughs) Flip over to Matthew chapter 3. If you think it's just going to go word for word, you're wrong. Go to Matthew chapter 3. So Jesus is born. He's raised in obscurity. He begins his public ministry by being baptized by his cousin John. He was baptized in solidarity with John's ministry, not because Jesus himself needed to repent, but notice what the Father says. As soon as Jesus was baptized, Matthew 3, 16, Jesus went up out of the water. At the moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, what? Whom I love. Well, that sounds familiar. Let's write that down for number two. Where you just put quote marks. Now listen, I'm going to punch through these in a progressively faster pace. So I'm going to go to Romans chapter 8. And then we're going to Mark chapter 10. And I'm going to hit like five or six of these just really quick. If I lose you, it's more important you get the parallels than you turn with me. Romans chapter 8. So we have a miraculous birth, and we have a son who is loved of a father. Abraham was invited to sacrifice his son. What does Romans 8, verse 32 say? If God is for us, 
Who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. Gave Him up for us is a way of saying sacrifice. So, the Father sacrifices Jesus. Would you agree? So sacrifice Him is number three. Flip to Mark chapter 10. I know it's so much Bible. I'm so sorry. I'm just, I want to apologize, guys, because it's just so much Bible. I know you just want more of my opinions and motivational speaking. I'm sorry. Unless you want to be down by a river in a van. Mark chapter 10. We're on number four. So Jesus, he, the disciples discover he's Messiah. And what's the first thing Jesus does? Don't tell anybody. And the reason was they, their concept of Messiah and Jesus' conception of Messiahship was totally different. So Jesus has to tell them, hey guys, I'm going to be suffering, just so you know. Mark 10, verse 30. Let's go 33. We're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. So three days later. Three days later, from our perspective, he's as good as dead, right? So put on the third day. Number four. Fewer of you are writing. I understand your perplexity. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. Remember that part when Abraham said, hey, we're going to worship and we'll come back? Do you remember that? Anybody? Why did Abraham say that? Was he lying? So his servants wouldn't stop him? Or Hebrews 11, verse 17. Did he believe something else? By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said, it's through Isaac that your offspring will come. Now check this out. Abraham reasoned that God could even what? Raise the dead. So the reason he believed will come back is that even if he did sacrifice Isaac, God could give Isaac So we said, we'll worship and we'll come back. So, number, what are we on? Abraham believed in resurrection. Now this is coming in for a landing in about five minutes, so stick with me. John chapter 19. Of all the details that we get on the crucifixion, this one has always been fascinating. John chapter 19, verse 16. The soldiers took charge of Jesus carrying his own cross. He went to the place of the skull. Now what's a cross made out of? I'm sorry. Oh, so that's fascinating. So Jesus is carrying the wood on which he'll be sacrificed. Jesus carried the wood. Number six. Number Seven, John chapter one. What does John call Jesus when he first sees him? John 1, 29. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
So Abraham said to Isaac, God will provide the lamb. The first thing the Baptist says about Jesus, the lamb that God has provided. You with me on this, brothers and sisters? You hanging in there? You got a couple more in you? (laughs) The yeses got fewer each time. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. A ram instead of Isaac. The parallel, of course, Jesus instead of us. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So let me get this straight. Abraham, the story of Isaac, a miraculous birth. Jesus, miraculous birth. Isaac, the son whom you love. Jesus, the son whom the Father loves. Isaac was sacrificed, or the command was to sacrifice him. Jesus, God who did not spare his own son, but sacrificed him. I mean, you see what's coming, right? We will come back and worship was Abraham's way of saying, I believe in resurrection. Then you have Isaac carrying the wood. Jesus carried the wood. God will provide a lamb. A lamb has been provided. A ram instead of Isaac. Jesus instead of me. Now there's one last parallel to make. Go to 2 Chronicles. That's right. You didn't see 2 Chronicles coming. You didn't at all. I know some of you were a little cocky earlier in the message. You're like, when we're going through Isaac and I'm having you write this down, he's like, it's Jesus. You knew it. And you thought, didn't you? You thought, I know where this is going. It's Jesus. May the Lord rebuke you for your arrogance because we are in 2 Chronicles. <laughs> 2 Chronicles chapter 3. And if you don't know where 2 Chronicles is, it is right after the book. Yes. So helpful. 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Oh, okay, okay, hold on, hold on. Let me get this straight. Let me get this straight. So, Abraham, take your kid to Mount Moriah. And he does all of this, and it's provided, and he says in the future tense... On this mountain, it will be provided. Let me get this straight. So 2 Chronicles says, Jerusalem's there. Solomon's building the temple there. That will be destroyed, built later by Herod in Jesus' day. Uh, Forgive me, where is Jesus crucified? Outside of Jerusalem, right outside of Jerusalem, which is on Mount Moriah, which is called on the mountain of the Lord. It will be provided. So let me get this straight. We don't have an Old Testament that's no longer relevant and a New Testament that's the only thing we worry about. We have one story. Would you agree? That all along the way, God was dropping hints and pictures and prophecies and illusions so that when Jesus finally came, we would understand the love that a father has for a son. And in That love, a willingness to sacrifice. And the love a son has for a father and a willingness to be sacrificed. Go to John chapter 3, verse 16. Oh, we're preaching now. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe some of you are ruining. (laughs) Although I highly doubt it. John chapter 3, verse 16. Now, 
One last minor point, and then we'll unleash the fury. There is a rabbinic principle of interpretation called the principle of first mention. What this means is to the rabbis who memorized vast, the vast majority of the Old Testament text. The rabbis, if they were in disagreement over a word, they would find out where the word was first used in the Bible. Because they believed that the first mention of the word or concept set the prototype for later uses of that word or concept. So if you're in a debate about what it means to work, you might say, well, where's the word work used first in the Bible? And you'd go there. Now here's what's fascinating. The first use of the word love in the entire Bible is in Genesis 22, verse 2. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. And because that was the first use of the word love to the Jewish consciousness, uh, the love that a mother has for a daughter is incredible. The love that a husband has for a wife, majestic. It's not that those loves aren't important, but in Jewish consciousness, because the first word, the first mention of the word love is used in the context of Abraham and Isaac to the Jewish mind. The highest picture of love was a father willing to sacrifice his son. And the highest picture of love was a son willing to be sacrificed by his father. So Jesus, speaking to a Jewish man named Nicodemus, says, God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. And the reason he used that image isn't because God is male. It's not because God is biological in any sense that we would understand it. God is not male. God is not female. God is a spirit. Masculine attributes are given to God. Feminine attributes are attributed to God. In fact, male and female are needed together to fully reflect his image. It's not because God's a chauvinist. And so he says, hey, the biggest image I want is of me as a father and Jesus as a son. That's what I want. When you guys draw up the Trinity, I want father and son because women are inferior. That's not what's happening. To the Jewish mind, the greatest picture of love was a father's willingness to sacrifice his son and a son's willingness to be sacrificed by his father. And so it is utterly no coincidence that Jesus, when he's searching for the perfect picture of God's love and willingness to serve the world, he would reach back into Genesis 22 and talk about a God who loves the world so much that he gave his one and his only son. Would you say that's good news? And so what you have is not an angry God sending Jesus unwillingly to the cross. You have to die because I'm ticked. What you have instead is the perfect demonstration. What more could God do to a culture that looks at love that way? You have the ideal situation where God, we, we often talk about how much God loves us, but how much does God love Jesus I mean, we just never, we can't even fathom what that would be like. The binding of Jesus. And the scriptures say he went willingly. I love it. Jesus, Jesus is a little, little cocky. No one takes my life unless I give it up. 
The author of Hebrews says it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. And so you have, early in the story, God giving a picture of what he will do in Christ. And the question remains for us, what more does God have to do? I don't know about you, when we talk about God's love for us, I just kind of go, oh, great. I mean, I'm not a big love guy. You know, I mean, it's not like I, I walk around going, man, I just, I, I, I need someone to love me. Now, I do. I'm just not in touch with that. So when, it, when people talk about, like, how much God loves me, I just go, well, I, I'm really glad. It's better than the reverse, or better than the opposite, right? And so for some of you, you just might be going, well, okay, well, this is kind of a cool, like, theoretical thing. But see, the Bible keeps pointing back at the Father and the Son and this willing sacrifice as the ultimate proof of God's love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now what that means if you're new to church, check this out. God loved you before you got religion. He loved you before you did anything good. You gave money, you watched children. He gave you, he loved you before you gave anything that was positive or religious. He loved you prior to all of that, which then has the corollary. He loves you regardless of your performance now. And the proof of this love is the sacrifice of a father and a son. And so far be it from us to ever say you got to get cleaned up or you got to get it figured out or you got to get right. The love of Christ and God the Father for you just sits there waiting to be received. That's it. There's no sacrifice left. There's no condemnation sitting over you if you receive this. It is simply the declaration. And that's why it just kills me. That Christians are no longer known as people of good news. We're just bad news people. We want to ruin everybody's fun. We want to suck the joy out of the world. We are people who believe that the highest and greatest demonstration of love that could ever be written or enacted was done by father to son 2,000 years ago. And we, as beneficiaries, now are invited to be participants in the ongoing story of that love. But it starts with us actually being convinced that we are objects of affection, not in virtue of our own goodness, but simply in virtue of a God who is love. That's it. Blue room, massive points for four responses. Brown room. I know God loves you, but I don't have to. And so that's kind of how the, <laughs> I'm just teasing. And somebody asked me this, okay, why is this brown room, look at your chairs. What color are they? Look at, look at, now I can't see you guys over here, but blue, right? So blue, brown, X-wing, Y-wing for you uh, Star Wars fans. At some point, we want to just do men and women, you know, just to kind of go old school. All right, so if you would, stand up. Now that I've ruined the religious mood in the building, stretch it out. I know how you do it. I know your fingers are tired. A lot of writing for some of you that don't write anymore. You just text. Okay, close your eyes. We're not done, by the way. So if you're leaving, close your eyes. God does his best work in the dark. 
Close your eyes. Brothers and sisters, don't know how this hits you. For some of us, we come into this place very well aware of the fact that we've spent our weeks worshiping and bowing down to other things, following our desires instead of the Spirit, living our lives as if God wasn't real or existed. And so we're tempted to come into a place like this and to think we got to dress up again, to think we got to apologize and make amends again. We think, oh my goodness, God can't possibly be as good as we think He is. Because look at how screwed up I am. And so we talk again and again incessantly about this love that God has for sinful people. Welcome to the club. And that even when His own disciples betrayed Him, He restored them. When they wandered away, he called them back. And that this Jesus of Nazareth offers love that does truly drive out fear. Because it is a love that is simply not attached to performance. And we just don't know what that's like. And so I want to pray over us this morning that the Holy Spirit, one of the major jobs of the Holy Spirit is to testify with our spirit that we are actually God's children And that you do no longer have to arrange for yourself life on your terms. So would you hold out your hands. In the name of the Lord Jesus of Nazareth, Father God, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit among us to renew, to build faith, to bring healing. That we might dare to believe you are as good as you say you are that we we might receive a love that is so beyond our understanding that we might actually dare to hope that there's nothing more we can do to get it and there's nothing we can do to lose it. That it just is in Christ. And that you, brothers and sisters, would grab hold of this news that God loved the world so much He gave His one and His only. 